If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It was a huge full stop. It brought to an end over 20 years of, of fighting right across Europe. And for Britain, at least, there was no more major fighting in Europe for, for 40 years until the Crimean War. That was Julian Humphreys on the importance of the Battle of Waterloo. Most of the bad things that happened in the 20th century derived from the destruction of the Holy Roman Empire, which Napoleon was responsible for. He was a war criminal who should have been uh, who should have been put on trial, not just sent off to exile. And that was Tim Blanning on the repercussions of Napoleon's actions. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good newsagents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our third podcast of June 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today, the 18th of June, marks the 200th anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo, fought between France and the armies of the Seventh Coalition on the 18th of June 1815. It's a battle that continues to feature strongly in the popular imagination, with street names, paintings and songs all marking Napoleon's defeat. But are we right to regard the battle as so important? And what are its legacies 200 years on? Well, to find out, our reviews editor, Matt Elton, spoke to two expert historians about the Battle of Waterloo and how we should be marking this anniversary. Later on, he'll be talking to Tim Blanning from the University of Cambridge. But first, military historian Julian Humphreys explains the battle's importance. Why do you think this particular battle has held such a place in the popular imagination for so many years? I think the main reason is it was a, it was a huge full stop. It brought to an end over 20 years of, of fighting right across Europe. And for Britain, at least, there was no more major fighting in Europe for, for 40 years until the Crimean War. And I think people were well aware of it, even at the time. You know, within, it, within a year, um, a medal had been given out to the people who 
fought in the campaign and also to the next of kins that, that of, of people who, who, who were killed in the campaign. And that was the first time that had ever been done. And just being in that campaign entitled you to an extra two years on your pension. So from the very start, it was seen as a, as a most important uh, victory, much, I should say, to the annoyance of all those people that had fought in the Peninsula War under Wellington in, in Spain, because they had to wait for over 30 years to get a medal. I mean, there's some hugely famous figures involved in this in this battle. Are there any that you think have had too much attention paid to them or any conversely that you think have been under kind of rated or overlooked? Well, I've always felt, actually, that it was perhaps the people that weren't there that were important. A lot of uh, Wellington's uh, veteran troops, for example, were still coming back from the United States where the Brits had been fighting a war against the Americans since since 1812. So many of his sort of veteran units uh, either weren't there or arrived at the very last minute. But if you look, for example, at at Napoleon's uh, army, the army itself was quite a veteran army, although there were sort of tensions between diehard Bonapartists and people who were prepared to go along with the flow of which government was in charge at the time. But many of his most talented generals just weren't there. So Berthier, for example, who was his chief of staff, so he was the guy that had to make sure that the orders that were drafted made sense and that they went to the right people and they were explained. He wasn't there. He'd um, uh, sworn loyalty to Louis XVIII. So he he felt he couldn't join Napoleon. And then, in fact, he fell out of a balcony and and died. And perhaps even more important than that, uh, Marshal Davout. Now, now Davout was perhaps one of Napoleon's best soldiers. And he had come over to to, to Napoleon's side when Napoleon returned from, from exile. But I think Napoleon felt he needed somebody back in Paris that he could trust. And so he left Marshal Davout behind. But Davout, had he had him on the battlefields of Ligny, Catrebras or Waterloo, you can't help but feel that he would have been much more effective than the mishmash of, of, of marshals and generals that, that, that Napoleon had serving him. Mm. Are there any characters who were there who you think had a particularly decisive role in the outcome? You have to really, I think, look at the, at the two commanders on uh, the Allied side, so Wellington and Blücher. But... In fact, uh, I think Wellington owed a huge debt to um, a Dutch-Belgian officer called uh, Baron Rebeck. Now, in British histories, the Dutch-Belgians don't get that greater credit for what happened at, uh, in, in, in the battles. You know, many of the earlier ones, just uh, earlier histories, describe them as really sort of running away. But in fact, Rebeck was a, was, was a pretty talented officer and he, he actually ignored Wellington's orders at the start of the campaign. Wellington had, had made a decision about where the British army or the Allied army should should concentrate in the event of a, of a, of a French invasion. And it was really the wrong place. It was too far away from, from their allies, the Prussians. And Rebecca realised that. And so he ignored Wellington's order and ordered the army to, to occupy a place called uh, Catra Bra. And this meant that the two armies, the British and the Prussians, were not quite so far apart. And had they been further apart, it would have made them very difficult to it made it very difficult for them to cooperate throughout the rest of the uh, of the campaign. Something else that comes through reading the stories of people involved in it is how brave some of them were. Yes, I mean, uh, this was a time when you uh, just looking at the generals, uh, you, you, you led from the front. There was no other way to do it. But of course, the men had to stand there and take it. This is not a period where you could really take cover. Um, so you had to stand in your in, in your lines or in your squares and, and in your columns. 
not knowing what was going to what was going to hit you, you know, and it, and it, it really it was a matter of chance whether you were you were hit or not. And it's interesting that some British units suffered extremely heavy casualties, uh, as many as two thirds. You know, if that had happened today, you know, there would be hell to pay, wouldn't there? You know, but perhaps they were more accepting of, of losses than other units just because of where they happened to be on the battlefields uh, suffered much lower casualties. Mm. Um, what other factors do you think shaped the outcome? How important, say, was the weather, for instance? The weather had an, an, an impact on on what happened during the campaign. But whether you can actually say that it led to Napoleon's defeat is a bit a bit harder to argue, I would say. There is no doubt that the weather during the campaign was was bad. Certainly on the, the, the day before Waterloo, when the British army were retreating back to their Waterloo position, there was a, a, a downpour of, of, of torrential proportions and it rendered the road seas of mud and the fields were, were, were swampy, et cetera, et cetera. And people commented about it at the time. And even on the day of, of Waterloo, the, the, the weather was a bit iffy. And uh, Wellington later said that he put his rain cape on and off about 50 times during the battle. But I think the point about that weather was it affected everybody. Now, which of the three armies had to do most of the marching, most of the of, of, of the rapid movement that was needed to bring about a victory? It was the Prussians. So, in fact, the, the, the rain may have held up the French in their pursuit and it may have made their artillery less effective because the ground was wet. But it also made it difficult for the Prussians to get onto the battlefield and intervene on, on the 18th. So the rain impacted on everybody. Mm, yeah. I mean, talking about the campaign more generally, what other turning points do you think were there in the lead up to this, this particular battle? Napoleon had a, a particular strategy that he employed during this campaign. And it's one that he'd used before. And he used it when his army was large, but the combined armies of his enemies were larger. And what it was called was the strategy of the central position. And the idea was that you got in between your enemy armies, held one off, and then defeated the other. And then having defeated the other, you turned onto the army that you'd been holding off. And that's exactly what he tried to do during this campaign. He managed to cross uh, the river into Belgium uh, without really being detected initially. And he managed to put his army between the British army, which, as I say, was cap- was centering at Quatre Bras, and the Prussian army at Ligny. And the idea was that he would hold the British, or he'd get Marshal Ney, one of his subordinates, to hold the British and then uh, defeat the, uh, the the Prussians. But he was unable to really completely defeat the Prussians. He gave them a terrible mauling, but he was not able to to destroy them, which meant that after the battle, although the Prussians uh, were forced to retreat, they did so in relatively good order. But it was also important the direction that they retreated, because normally a retreating army, a defeated army, retreats along its lines of communication. In other words, along the, 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 the roads and the lines where their supplies come from. Well, if you think about Britain and Prussia, a defeated British army or a retreating British army would head back towards the Channel ports via Brussels. Uh, a defeated Prussian army would head eastwards back towards Prussia. Now, had that happened, the two armies, British and Prussian, would have been dangerously uh, separated and the, the, the British would have been in real trouble. But uh, the Prussians, in fact, didn't do that. They retreated northwards, in other words, parallel to the, uh, the, the, the British. So therefore, when the British fell back to their, their, their holding position at Mont-Saint-Jean that we now call the Waterloo position. They knew that somewhere on their left flank, there was a Prussian army, which, if all things went to plan, could come to their rescue or come to their assistance on, on, on the battlefield of Waterloo. So in terms of the battle itself, what were the turning points in that particular 
uh, event? I think we have to say that I think we have to say that once Napoleon had failed to defeat the Prussians at Ligny on the 16th of June, that he was in big trouble and that it would have taken quite a lot for him to pull himself out, I think, out of the hole that he was in at at, at Waterloo on the 18th. Having said that, there were key moments in that that battle. I think uh, Wellington himself said that, that every moment in the battle was a crisis, you know, so there were constant problems, constant challenges, constant crises that both sides had to deal with. Now, one of the first key moments in in the battle took place almost immediately. Um, Over on Wellington's right, there was a fortified farm called Hougoumont, and it was defended by British guardsmen and uh, German troops in in the woods around it. And it sort of anchored uh, uh, Wellington's position, and it made it difficult for the the French to work around that flank. And had they captured that uh, that farm and chateau of Hougoumont, they were in a very good position to threaten Wellington's line. So it was important that it should be held. And it was held, but only just because the back of the uh, of, of the farm complex, there were some big gates and they were left open so that ammunition and, and supplies could be fed through to the British and German troops within the Hougoumont uh, area. And during the, the, the hubbub of the first fighting, which originally the French saw, I think, as a diversionary attack, but they got sucked into fighting more and more there. During that, that hubbub and in the confusion, a, a party of French worked around the back of the farm and they got in through the open gates. And uh, this was clearly a crisis because if the farm fell, Wellington would have been in, in terrible trouble. But but fortunately, the uh, the commander of the of the garrison there, a, a Scotsman called Macdonald, uh, was kind of ready for for the for the problem. He was able to deal with it. He, he gathered together a party of, of of soldiers of his own, and they fought their way through the sort of melee that was going on in the in in the farmyard, and they physically forced the gates shut against the French so that no more French could get in. And then they quite mercilessly, in fact, sorted all the French that had been trapped inside Hougoumont, with the exception of a drummer boy who was, who was spared. And Wellington later said that the success of the whole battle depended on the closing of those gates. What do you make of Wellington's character? I think uh, Wellington was a conservative in many ways. And I think he was a, a, a conservative as, as a soldier as well, there were no great strategic or tactical innovations, in my opinion, that Wellington brought in. He was very much an 18th century general. And I think he was somebody that was that was very good at detail. I think of Napoleon as somebody that thinks about the grand scheme of things and he will throw in thousands of men in um, in, in, in attacks. Uh, uh, Wellington, uh, I suppose he had to be because the British army was never very large. It said in the Peninsula War on one occasion, he looked down on the French and somebody said, well, why don't you attack them? He said, well, I could beat those those fellows any day of the week. But uh, as this is the last army that England has, we have to take care of it. And so Wellington was a master of the detail. He was very careful how he positioned his men. He was an excellent horseman. And he had the ability to be in the right place at the right time. So you find him popping up at key moments through the uh, through the battle, giving advice. Whether those subordinates wanted that advice, I don't know, because one thing you, you have to say about Wellington was he was a very poor delegator. But he but he knew what he was doing. But, you know, you, you, you can't help but think had Wellington been killed Goodness knows what would have happened. You know, it's even said that he was reluctant to share his plans with his second in command, for example. But, you know, right at the end of the battle, when uh, the French Imperial Guard are mounting the last desperate French attack, who's there on the spot? Wellington. 
you know, he's even seeing what's going on in in the farm of Hugamon down to the, the the details. Like I can see that the roof's on fire. Make sure that the soldiers um, inside are aren't trapped there. I often wonder what the commanders thought about this. Uh, you know, wonder they thought, well, surely we know our jobs and we don't need the Duke to tell us this. I don't know, but he certainly had that attention for detail. Hmm. Um, what would you say to the argument that uh, Napoleon's fate was already sealed before Waterloo? Um, I think that that there's a very strong case to to be made for that because once Napoleon had returned from um, from Elba, it it it, it galvanised Europe really into in, into trying to deal with the the Corsican monster as they might have seen him for the, for the for once and for all. And so you know as well as the as the British or Allied army that Wellington commanded in in the Low Countries and the Prussian army, you had huge numbers of men coming from Russia and Austria who were all converging onto France. So you kind of can't help but feel that it was a matter of time. But in the end, uh, Napoleon would have been defeated. But I guess the the, the response to that is, well, somebody had to do it. And in the end, it was the the British and, and Prussians who did it. And I suppose Napoleon might have thought that a victory over the over the over the British uh, might have led perhaps to a fall of the government. It might have driven the Prussians out of the uh, um, out, out of the war, and maybe it, it, it would have strengthened his position. But I, but I can't help feeling that it, it was only a matter of time. The writing was very much on the wall for him. That's a good point, actually. If you could go back in time and somehow ask somebody involved in this campaign a question, what would you ask? Um, I think I'd like to go back and ask one of the British soldiers what they thought of Napoleon. I've got this sort of sneaking feeling that they regarded him in the same way that Desert Rats in the Last War regarded Rommel, in that he was the enemy, but you, they had a sort of admiration for him. And, I, and I'm just wondering what, 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 what they thought about the man, whether they thought anything at all about him or whether they were just, just doing their jobs. I often think that the motivation of, 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 of a soldier is that you're fighting really for your mates around you. And it would be interesting to see if that's the way that the, that the, that the British soldiers, for example, at the time saw, saw, saw the situation. It's an interesting point there because it's it's so hard to tell what ordinary soldiers on the ground thought and felt, you know. Well, absolutely. You know, some of them um, have left accounts. Um, there, there's uh, one one chap called uh, Private Wheeler, who's got all of those sort of British attitudes to foreigners that you would uh, that that you might expect. So when he was in in uh, Portugal, he's been very rude about the um, uh, the, the Portuguese and the Spanish. I think he was quite rude about Louis the, Louis the Eighteenth. And you know, so 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 it's interesting. It would be interesting to see what 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 they thought about things. Did they hate the French? I I suspect not. But I do reckon that it would have been very different if I'd then gone and spoken to a Prussian soldier, because it, to a certain extent, I suppose, the, that the British could be afford to be a bit magnanimous because, of course, we'd never been conquered or occupied by the French. You know, you only have to look at the, the, at the awful pictures of uh, the horrors of war that Goya produced, for example, atrocities in Spain between the, uh, the, the local population and the French invaders or the fact that somewhere like Berlin was occupied by the um, uh, by, by, by the French just by having an army somewhere its need to, to exist and live means that the surrounding area is going to be stripped of supplies and money etc etc of course we never had that 
The British never had that. So therefore, perhaps we're more magnanimous than, uh, than, than, than the other nations of Europe were. So maybe to sort of speak to a Prussian soldier and an English soldier to develop my idea would be even more interesting, actually. Mm, that's a good point. I mean, this is obviously the 200th anniversary this year. Um, how do you think we should mark it, given that there are those slightly mixed feelings about it, I suppose, even today? Well, I don't have any mixed feelings about it, actually. I mean, I, I, I read and greatly enjoyed uh, Andrew Roberts's Napoleon the Great, a real arc de triomphe of a, book, of a book, isn't it? You know, this mighty sort of 900 pages singing the praises of, of, of Napoleon. But I, but, I, but I see Napoleon as an immensely destructive force, in fact, uh, that plunged Europe into a completely disastrous period of, of 20 years of warfare, which left millions dead and the, the whole of Europe, you know, scarred by war. So I, I think we should be pretty glad, actually, that that, uh, that the combined powers of Europe were, were able to defeat Napoleon. Mm. So if we were to leave this anniversary year with a new impression of this event's importance in history, what would that be? Well, I think I would go back to, to, to its importance was the fact that it, that it did usher in a period of a relative peace in Europe, something that, uh, that, that wasn't the case before. Perhaps it's a situation where war is gradually being seen as an aberration rather than the normal state of affairs. Mm. So when we constantly refer to things as being a Waterloo, that's kind of you know, fair enough to see them as being this kind of shift, this turning point, this major event, I guess. I think so. I mean, I think perhaps it's become totemic in, in, in that way. But, 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 I, but I would agree with that. I think that, um, uh, that, that, that it is, a, it, as I say from the start, it, it, it's very much a military and, and political full stop, I think. That was Julian Humphreys. Julian is Development Officer for the Battlefields Trust and previously worked at the National Army Museum. He will also be acting as the quiz master for a special history quiz that is taking place at our History Weekend Festival in Malmesbury this autumn. For more on that event and the complimentary weekend at York and to buy tickets, please visit historyweekend.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. 
Now it's time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarnane. A hunt for Viking DNA among Normandy residents has sparked concerns from anti-racism activists, it has been reported. According to The Guardian, a team of academics at the University of Leicester is collecting DNA samples from around 100 volunteers from the Cotantin Peninsula area in search of Viking heritage. The team is trying to find descendants of the Vikings who invaded what is now Normandy in the 9th century. The aim is to learn more about the, quote, intensity of the Scandinavian colonisation in the 9th and 10th centuries in the Cotantin Peninsula, said senior history lecturer Richard Jones. However, the project has raised concerns among some local anti-racism activists. The head of the local wing of the Movement Against Racism group said, We're worried this will build on the idea that there are real Normans and fake Normans. In the current context of xenophobia, it's very dangerous. And medieval history professor Pierre Baudouin from the nearby University of Cannes said he had warned the Leicester academics that racial origins are, quote, an extremely sensitive topic in France. Leicester lecturer Richard Jones dismissed the concerns raised, saying the scientists were only studying 2% of a person's DNA in order to potentially establish Scandinavian ancestry dating back more than 10 centuries. In other news, sonar scans have revealed shattered wrecks from the 1916 Battle of Jutland, the biggest naval clash of the First World War. According to the Telegraph, seabed scans collected by the Royal Navy ship HMS Echo show the twisted and battered wreck of HMS Invincible, which was lost with a thousand sailors when it was blown up. The project is the most ambitious attempt to scan the full battle site. Nick Hewitt, a historian with the National Museum of the Royal Navy, who was on board HMS Echo, said... The condition of the wrecks varies enormously. Some have suffered badly from post-war attempts to salvage them, but others are astonishingly intact. The Battle of Jutland saw 250 warships from the British and German navies clash on the 31st of May 1916, when the Germans tried to break a naval blockade. Thanks for that, Emma. And now back to Waterloo. In the second of this week's interviews, Matt spoke to Professor Tim Blanning, an expert in European history based at Sydney Sussex College, University of Cambridge. Matt began by asking Tim why the Battle of Waterloo continues to exert such a pull on the popular imagination. Well, because uh, it seemed to mark the end of the Napoleonic Wars. It did indeed mark the end of the Napoleonic Wars. This country had been fighting since 1793. The Revolutionary Wars had begun the previous year in 1792, so Europe had been at war almost continuously for nearly a quarter of a century. And at the time, it was clearly appreciated that Waterloo was the end. Napoleon had been defeated in 1814, had been forced to abdicate. He tried again, 1815, he came back from Elba and tried again. Now he'd been defeated again decisively. And so there's no question of the wars being resumed. So I think it, was, it really did mark the, the lid being slammed on that particular cauldron. Mm. Do you think there's any misconceptions that people have today about the battle and its significance? No, I don't think really. I mean, I think it was, it was very important, clearly, because it did mark the definitive end. Uh, from a military point of view, it's really the icing on the cake rather than the substance of the meal itself, because the, in my view... Um, 
the decisive battle had taken place um, more, almost two years previously at Leipzig in October 1813. That was when Napoleon lost control of Central Europe. And I think that was really the, the decisive battle, more important than Waterloo. Even if Napoleon had won Waterloo, he was going to lose the campaign. I think that was, that's clear. So the outcome of Waterloo in some ways wasn't important in a military context? Well, I wouldn't go that far. Um, these are counterfactuals. Let's just assume for a moment that it, this close-run thing turned out to be a thing which ran in Napoleon's direction. And he did, after all, at one point in the late afternoon on June the 18th, 1815, it did look as though he might win. But had he won against the, um, against the Allies and against the Prussians, that would have made no difference to the campaign because the, there were hundreds of thousands of Russians and Austrians in reserve who were on their way up. And Napoleon had suffered terrible casualties at Waterloo. It was well over 25,000 men, many more in, in wounded who died soon afterwards. So that bloodletting from what was already quite a small reserve he had uh, would have led to um, sooner or later, sooner in my view, um, him being simply overwhelmed by the numerical strength of the Russians and the Austrians. Mm. But the outcome was important politically as well. Yes, yes it was. Um, certainly it led to his abdication and the, re the final return of the Bourbon. Well, they didn't stay very long, did they? <laughs> no, and it shaped, it shaped the peace uh, settlement as well, didn't it? Yes, it did. Uh, France had to be penalised um, for the return of Napoleon, and indeed it was. They lost more territory and they lost some of their ill-gotten gains from the looting of the rest of Europe. Um, although even then it has to be said that the, the Allies behaved towards the French uh, at the Congress of Vienna, both in 1814 and 1815, even after the return from Elba, with an extraordinary degree of magnanimity if one compares it to what the Allies did to the Germans in 1919 after the First World War. Hmm. Do we get a sense of what uh, it must have been like on the battlefield? Oh, yes, I think one can, because it was um, recorded... Uh, in all kinds of different ways. Um, so many people, well, of course, an awful lot died and they didn't record their impressions, obviously, but m many of the survivors did record in private correspondence in, uh, and, in, and in histories and journals. And there's a flood of publications after 1815. Waterloo was really big business. It was the biggest battle that had, in terms of uh, residence in the public sphere so far as the Anglophone world was concerned anyway. It was the biggest battle there had ever been in terms of residence. And so there was a, a flood, a torrent of uh, eyewitness accounts of what had happened during the battle. Whether anyone had an appropriate view of what, or a total view of what happened, of course, is, is, uh, is, very, is quite a different matter. And Wellington himself said that a battle is like a, going to a ball. Um, you can remember certain things of what happened during the evening, you know, who got off with whom, who went in the shrubbery with whom and so on. Um, but no one really knows, um, um, has, a, has a clear idea of the sequence of events um, because it's only a partial view. And, and Wellington himself at the battle, um, although it was confined within a relatively small space, really had quite a limited view of what was of what was going on. I mean, he did his best, but there were times, for example, when he found himself in the middle of a, an infantry square being attacked by the French and didn't have a clue what was happening to right or left of him. And um, until quite late in the day, he didn't uh, have any precise knowledge of where the Prussians were and how far they had advanced. So uh, this is chaos, confusion, like all battles. 
Um, but there are an awful lot of people who were prepared to tell uh, uh, the public about their particular experience in their particular bit of the battle. Mm, I see, yes. Something that comes through is the bloodiness of it, the scale of the carnage, isn't it? Yes, it was terrible. Uh, I mean, it was quite a small battlefield. And there uh, what, 200,000 men packed in there, 400 guns. They fought all day. Or, no one actually knows when it really started, probably around about 11 o'clock in the morning. It's over by 8 or 9 o'clock at night. And in, the, in between times, this really was, it was an old cliche, but it, it was true, it really was a killing field. Uh, bodies were just a heap, and dead horses too. Men, horses, wounded men, dead men, piled in great heaps. Uh, there are terrible, harrowing descriptions of the, uh, the battlefield, not just in the immediate aftermath of the battle that night or even the following day, but for days afterwards. Uh, people were being gathered from the battlefield, dead, half dead, dying. Awful. How was the outcome viewed elsewhere in Europe? It, it clearly had the biggest impact, well, in two countries, I suppose, um, the British, who were triumphalist about it, most of them, not all of them, there were some dissenting voices, but the overwhelming majority of British public opinion rejoiced, didn't they ever rejoice? Uh, because the commander was the Duke of Wellington. He was, their, he was their boy, you know, he was their man. So there's tremendous celebration in, uh, in the United Kingdom, which was then depicted in song, in word, in poems, in plays and pictures and so on and so forth. There's also a good deal of celebration in um, the two, uh, two parts of the Low Countries, which have been combined by the peacemakers of Vienna to form the new United Kingdom of the Netherlands. That's, in effect, that's putting Belgium and the Dutch Republic together in one, now in one kingdom, ruled by a, a king from the House of Orange. There's tremendous celebration there. Uh, and indeed, that was reflected in the um, construction, eventual construction, of by far the biggest monument to be found at Waterloo, the, the um, Colossal Mound, uh, the, the Lion Mound, sorry. Um, so there's tremendous celebration there. Uh, also in Hanover, uh, Hanoverian troops had been to the fore, had fought with great distinction, and in two other parts of Germany where, again, um, uh, people had been directly involved in, uh, in Nassau and in, uh, and in Brunswick, uh, celebrations in Prussia were also very considerable, although um, it was never, it's never ever really been regarded by, um, by Prussians, and indeed by most German historians as being the crucial battle. That was Leipzig. Um, but there, certainly there, was, there were great celebrations in Prussia too. And then in France, well, there's a, a kind of mixed response there uh, for all those who were supporters of Bonaparte. Of course, it was an unmitigated disaster. I mean, he's off to St. Helena for good this time. Um, but there, and there were those who, even if they were supporters of the Bourbon monarchy and welcomed the fact that uh, Napoleon was going and uh, Louis XVIII was coming back again, well, there, there was a lot of um, feeling, that, oh God, I mean, you know, we've been beaten, haven't we, really? Um, a, very, a, a, a good example of that um, is to be found in the response of Chateaubriand. Um, who said, uh, recorded this, this rather moving passage, actually. He says that uh, he, when he heard the result of the battle, he felt, well, yes, that's great. I can go back to France now because he was a supporter of the Bourbon. And um, if Napoleon had won, then I would have had to go into exile for the rest of my life. But even so, I still feel bad about it because France has been defeated. So there's a kind of, you know, uh, mixed feelings among those who were anti-Napoleon, but very pro-France. 
That's really interesting. Yeah. You mentioned there some of the huge range of artworks and other forms of art that were made uh, about this battle. Are there any that stand out for you? Uh, yes, I think uh, probably the painting by Turner and his and the sketches he made on the battlefield, incidentally, although not immediately after the battle. I think they're the most moving. And um, there's a particularly fine sketch. I think actually it's more powerful than the uh, finished um, oil painting. Um, the sketch which uh, Turner uh, did and which is now in the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge, um, which isn't triumphalist at all. It just it's just shows dead bodies. Uh, both French uh, and British bodies lying there dead. Um, and it, it, it's given the genius with which Turner composes um, this, this scene, it, it makes a very powerful impact. How did subsequent leaders and people use the battle for political aims? How, how did they shape people's view of it in hindsight? Well, I don't think they needed to. I don't think um, the polit- political leaders really needed to um, exploit the battle in any way. I and mean, it was done for them by, by the public prince. And there's a huge outpouring of, of joy uh, among the victor powers, especially no, no less so than in, uh, than in London, no more so than in London. There was huge, huge celebrations. I don't think it had to be um, exploited, at least not in the, not in the short term. The, the response to it was spontaneous. As time went on, um, then, of course, it's instrumentalized by, uh, by those who wanted to promote it for party political purposes. So within the English political spectrum, clearly those conservatives who saw the Duke of Wellington as their leader promoted it for party political reasons against, against the Whigs and then subsequently against the Liberals. So it's usually conservative or Tory party uh, faithful who celebrate uh, Waterloo Day with great banquet and appropriate speeches, toast to the Duke of Wellington and so on. Um, in, in France, it was promoted very much by the, by the Bourbon, who are, reti- who are returning um, as an illustration of the, of the reckless um, gambling instinct uh, of Napoleon, which fortunately they had got rid of now that they had been liberated as a result of the Battle of Waterloo. So the Battle of Waterloo is presented for Bourbon supporters as a liberation rather than as a defeat for France. Um, that, that, that kind of instrumentali- instrumentalization goes on. Um, and and uh, I mean, in a sense, it's continued in, until, until, the, until the present day. If we could somehow travel back to the battle, what question would you like to ask of the people involved in it? Well, the quest- big question to Napoleon is, why didn't you start earlier? And they, if he'd started three or, four, three or four hours earlier, he might well have won. The excuse, or the reason was, perhaps it's not an excuse, but the reason the, the ground was too wet. I had to dry out before they could get going, but um, with the advantage of hindsight, I think it's clear that if he'd started uh, two or three hours earlier, he would have had a much better chance. Uh, and the, the second question to him would have been, why on earth didn't you send more precise instructions to Grouchy to bring uh, the, his corps back from pursuing the Prussians to the battlefield where th- th- those men might have made um, a really significant difference? In this anniversary year, how, how should we look back at the battle and its importance uh, to European history, I suppose? Its importance lies in that it really does bring one era to an end. Usually dates in history are a bit fuzzy. 
Some of them clearly do mark an end. 1945 is one, for example. 1919 doesn't really fall into that category because, in effect, the Second World War was a continuation of the first. Um, but 1945 clearly did mark a decisive end in European history, and so did 1815 for the same reason. It brings to an end not just the revolutionary Napoleonic Wars, they were clearly not going to start up again and did not, uh, but also brings to an end what can be called the, the long 18th century. Uh, I think there's no doubt about that. Are there any characters who emerge for you as heroes or that you think have been overrated in this story? Well, I think Napoleon was always overrated and that tendency continues. Andrew Roberts' book and radio programmes continues to regard him as a world historical figure. He actually calls his book Napoleon the Great, I think. It's the man responsible for uh, something like somewhere several million deaths in Europe and devastation. It's just awful. Most of the bad things that happened in the 20th century derive from the destruction of the Holy Roman Empire, which Napoleon was responsible for. He was a war criminal who should have been, uh, who should have been put on trial, not just sent off to exile. That's my view, anyway. So he's the villain of the piece, and thank God we finally got rid of him, Waterloo. The hero, uh, well, there are many heroes, uh, those who, who, who fought despite the fact that they were terrified and saw it out in, like in, as in any battle. But if you have to in, identify one or maybe two, then I think it has to be the Duke of Wellington, who kept his nerve um, and clearly was uh, like, a, like both in facial expression and in his general demeanor was a rock throughout the day. And also uh, Blücher, who despite his advanced age, got the Prussians onto the battlefield in time to turn what I think would have been a victory anyway into a rout. What do you make of Wellington's character? I think Wellington is a much more interesting uh, and, and sensitive and intelligent person than he is often presented. Although there are some um, very fine biographies of him now. He has been treated very well by his biographers, by Lady Longford, for example. Uh, and it makes it clear he's really quite complex, um, has many admirable traits. Not least, and this is one I really like, um, which should be repeated again and again when he, when he tells the, that, that, that woman who had tried to, tried to blackmail, publish and be damned. Uh, I really like that. That was Tim Blanning. Tim's next book, Frederick the Great, King of Prussia, is due to be published in September by Alan Lane. And you can read articles by both Tim and Julian on the Battle of Waterloo in the June issue of BBC History magazine, which has just gone off sale, but is available as a back issue. Head to historyextra.com for details of how to purchase a print back issue or visit your app store for digital copies. Meanwhile, our July issue has just gone on sale. Inside this month's magazine, there are articles on the Black Death, Genghis Khan, the Battle of Britain and the Reformation, among other things. You can get hold of our June issue now in all good news agents and digitally. And for this issue, we're trying out a new service whereby you can enjoy audio versions of the articles. These will be available to listen to on the iPad and iPhone versions of the magazine, and you can also download the content for free from the website. Visit historyextra.com forward slash July audio for that. And to whet your appetite, 
Here is one of the articles that appears in this month's issue. Written by Peter H. Hansen, it tells the story of the tragic first ascent of the Matterhorn that took place 150 years ago. Tragedy on the Matterhorn The conquest of the last great alpine peak in 1865 should have been a triumph, but instead ended in the deaths of four climbers. On the 150th anniversary of the incident, Peter H. Hansen examines its impact on attitudes to mountaineers. A moment was all it took for joy to be supplanted by horror. Less than an hour after Edward Wimper had laughed in jubilation from the summit of the Matterhorn on the 14th of July 1865, having completed the first successful ascent of the Alpine Peak on the Swiss-Italian border, his triumph was shattered by tragedy. Among his group was an inexperienced young climber who slipped on a treacherous section of descent, dragging off the mountain three others who were roped to him. On hearing the cries of the falling men, Wimper and his two local guides had just an instant to brace themselves before the force of the accident broke the rope tying them to the falling climbers. For a few seconds, Wimper recalled, we saw our unfortunate companions sliding downwards on their backs and spreading out their hands, endeavouring to save themselves. They passed from our sight uninjured, disappeared one by one and fell from precipice to precipice. The four hapless climbers plummeted 1,200 metres, their bodies dashed to pieces on the glacier below. The Matterhorn accident was one of the deadliest mountaineering catastrophes of the 19th century, sparking a wide debate about mountaineering, masculinity and empire. Wimper was the unlikely leader of a climbing team that had been formed only days earlier. This engraver from South London had laid siege to the Matterhorn since 1861, climbing on its southern, Italian, ridges by himself or with guides. On the eve of his 1865 attempt, however, the bravest of these guides, Jean-Antoine Carrel, transferred his services to a group of climbers from Turin who hoped to plant the flag of the recently unified Italy on the summit. Wimper felt betrayed. By chance, though, he met Lord Francis Douglas, the amiable 18-year-old younger brother of the Marquess of Queensbury. Douglas's Swiss guide, Peter Torgwalder, had inspected the northern side of the Matterhorn and believed that it could be climbed from the Swiss village of Zermatt. The new companions crossed into Switzerland. There they met the Reverend Charles Hudson, a muscular English clergyman. He was travelling with Douglas Haddo, an 18-year-old climbing novice, and Michael Cross, a well-known French guide who had previously climbed with Wimper. One of Torgwalder's sons also joined the team. Since the mid-1850s, many an alpine summit had felt the scrape of British hobnailed boots attempting first ascents, but the 4,478-metre, 14,692-foot Matterhorn remained unconquered. As Wimper's team ascended the northeastern ridge, they knew the Italians were already climbing on the other side of the mountain. The race to be first was on. Unexpectedly, the team discovered that the Swiss slopes formed a natural staircase up, which Wimper clambered with mounting excitement. Beneath the highest pinnacle, Wimper unroped himself and raced to the top. Had they beaten the Italians? The snow was untrodden. Laughing with joy, the climbers spotted the Italians below, mere dots on the ridge. Wimper and Croz shouted and waved their arms, but were unsure whether they had been seen. 
We drove our sticks in and prized away the crags, and soon a torrent of stones poured down the cliffs. There was no mistake about it this time. The Italians turned and fled. At the summit, Croz tied his shirt to a tent pole, creating an impromptu flag visible from all directions. Wimper sketched the panoramic view and chipped off a piece of rock as a souvenir. After building a pile of stones and leaving their names in a bottle, the group began the descent, led by Croz. Reaching the steepest, most treacherous section, Croz began to manually place Haddo's boots in each step. At a crucial moment, though, Haddo slipped and knocked him over, and Hudson and Douglas were yanked off their feet. Hearing their cries, Wimper and Torgvolder planted themselves firmly to absorb the jerk of the rope. We held, but the rope broke midway between Torgvolder and Lord Francis Douglas. From the moment the rope broke, it was impossible to save those below. Wimper examined the rope and found it to be the weakest cord they had brought, not intended to be used for protection while climbing. Wimper and the two Torgvolders made the sorrowful descent to Zermatt, from where rescuers left to search for survivors. They found bloodstains, fragments of clothes and shattered human remains. Cross, Haddo and Hudson were identified from shreds of clothing and tufts of beard. Scraps of Lord Francis Douglas's clothing were found, but there was no sign of his body, except perhaps for the birds of prey circling the cliffs above the debris field. Visitors to Zermatt's Alpine Museum can today see relics including the frayed end of the rope. Aftermath of the accident An inquest in Switzerland found that Haddo was responsible for the accident, clearing Wimper of wrongdoing, but this did little to quell a heated debate about the accident in Britain. The Times viewed the ascent of the Matterhorn as utterly incomprehensible and asked what right mountaineers had to throw away the gift of life. Is it duty? Is it common sense? Is it allowable? Is it not wrong? Charles Dickens lambasted the climbers as foolhardy braggarts. Mountaineers were not heroic, he said, nor to be compared to those who braved cholera, visited typhus patients or fought in the Crimean War. We shall be told that mountaineering is a manly exercise, he wrote. It is so inasmuch as it is not womanly, but it is not noblemanly when it is selfish. Mountaineering, according to Dickens, was no more manly than gambling and indicated contempt for and waste of human life, a gift too holy to be played with like a toy, under false pretenses, by bragging vanity. By contrast, novelist Anthony Trollope compared mountaineers to soldiers, sportsmen and explorers. Death on a mountain was the same as death in battle or an African expedition. Trollope saw all these as bloodshed for the honour of the country. He hoped that the accident on the Matterhorn may not repress the adventurous spirit of a single English mountain climber and looked forward to hearing of new ascents in Asia or South America. Comparisons to imperial exploration shifted opinion about the Matterhorn accident in favour of the climbers. The illustrated London News likened the victims to English explorers who had died in the Australian outback. Climbing mountains trained Englishmen to follow the call of duty, its editors argued, and contributed to military prowess, commercial prosperity and scientific knowledge. There would be small philosophy, nay, small knowledge of the world shown in discouraging adventure. It has given us the empire. 
Such celebrations of manliness, exploration and empire persuaded some critics to reassess their dim view of mountaineering. While awaiting Wimper's account of the accident, the Times conceded, perhaps it is necessary that there should be an order of men to attempt what no one else will attempt, to show what can be done and the feats which human courage and endurance can perform. Even John Ruskin, who had censured mountaineers for treating the Alps like soaped poles in a bear garden, was moved to temper his criticism. No blame ought to attach to the Alpine tourist for incurring danger, Ruskin wrote shortly after the Matterhorn accident. Some experience of distinct peril and the acquirements of quick and calm action in its presence are necessary elements at some period of life in the formation of manly character. Wimper made similar points in Scrambles Amongst the Alps, 1871, a lavishly illustrated account of his climbs during the 1860s that remains a touchstone of mountaineering literature. He closed his account of that fateful climb by tallying the benefits of mountaineering beyond enjoying physical fitness and the beautiful scenery. We value more highly the development of manliness and the evolution under combat with difficulties of those noble qualities of human nature, courage, patience, endurance and fortitude. In 1867, Wimper set out to explore the interior of Greenland, but later plans to climb in the Himalayas were stymied by political conditions. Instead, he travelled to Ecuador with Jean-Antoine Carrel, his erstwhile Matterhorn partner and rival. During 1879 and 1880, they collected scientific specimens, researched altitude sickness and climbed Chimborazo, 6,268 metres, among other peaks. The real effect of the accident itself, the Saturday Review wrote in 1865, has been to stimulate enterprise and to crowd Zermatt to overflowing. Crowds have only grown over the 150 years since then. Zermatt has become one of the most popular alpine resorts. In July, a new and enlarged base camp lodge, the Hörnlehörte, will open near the spot where Wimper and his party slept before that first ascent in 1865. On the 14th of July, however, the peak will be closed to all climbers in remembrance and to honour the people, more than 500 of them, who have died on the Matterhorn since that tragic day in 1865. Extra material. Accidents at altitude. The history of climbing is littered with the bodies of unfortunate mountaineers and their guides. The Hamel Catastrophe, Mont Blanc, 1820. The insistence of Dr Joseph Hamel, a Russian naturalist, on climbing Mont Blanc after a heavy snowfall, against his guide's advice, proved disastrous. On the 20th of August, an avalanche killed three of his Chamonix guides, a tragedy sometimes cited as the first notorious alpine mountaineering accident. The deaths led in 1821 to the creation of the Company of Guides of Chamonix to regulate pay, provide compensation for families and ensure guides have authority to make decisions during ascents. The victims became entombed in the slow-moving Bossens Glacier, their remains only emerged from the ice during the 1860s. The Mallory Mystery, Mount Everest, 1924 English mountaineers George Mallory and Andrew Irvine were last seen alive on the 8th of June, 1924, sighted through a break in the clouds as they ascended towards the summit of Everest. 
their disappearance so close to the top formed the dramatic climax to the expedition film The Epic of Everest and sparked years of speculation. Had they completed the first ascent before their deaths? In 1999, Mallory's frozen body was discovered, presumably at the spot where he fell and died. There was no sign of Irvine and no proof that they had reached the summit before the fatal accident. Avalanche on Everest, Mount Everest, 2014 On the 18th of April 2014, a large block of ice collapsed onto the Kumbu Icefall, the most hazardous section of the most popular route up Everest, killing 16 Nepali expedition workers, most of them ethnic Sherpas. Thirteen bodies were recovered, but three remained trapped in the ice. The high death toll led to protests by local workers at Everest Base Camp, demanding better regulation, compensation for families and the cancellation of further climbs that year as a mark of respect for the victims. About the writer Peter H. Hansen is Professor of History at Worcester Polytechnic Institute in Massachusetts. That was Tragedy on the Matterhorn, written by Peter H. Hansen and voiced by Sally Bailey. You can enjoy more audio content from this edition of the magazine with our iPad and iPhone editions, or else download it for free from historyextra.com forward slash July audio. Well, that is pretty much it for this week, but do join us next time when we'll be broadcasting a lecture from last year's History Weekend Festival. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website historyextra.com where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.